0: We don't really push the envelope, more like open it. This is Litopia,
1: After Dark. The NET's first and foremost literary salon. A feast of ideas for your hungry mind. So pull
0: up a chair and let's talk. Good evening, this is Peter Cox uh, Nothing much has happened really since I was last with you um, Zombies have attacked America <laughs> Greece and now Spain have gone bust And Great Britain has garroted itself with bunting <laughs> Not quite normal really, or isn't normal,
1: is It's tonight's show The excitement is mounting Join us in the chat room for the Nets' first and foremost literary salon Latopia After Dark Intelligent listening for dangerous minds
0: Hello to my co-host Dave Bartram from the West Country. Dave, how was your jubilee?
2: My jubilee was spent avoiding jubilees. <laughs> I didn't partake.
0: It was a negative of, jubilee. Um, a negative
2: jubilee. It, it was a kind of negative. I did. I did saunter onto the, the, the village green to watch various people sitting around being roasted in the sunshine whilst they waved flags at nobody that was there because obviously nobody turned up in our little. Um, of the world. Seriously, you actually got I good weather, we... did
0: you? Because we were completely washed out here. No street parties.
2: There was one day, was it the Monday? It was blisteringly hot. Well,
0: uh, the weather's actually been total shit here for the past 10 <laughs> days in London. But our own LEG is always in a sunny disposition in the chat room. Um... Go there if you want to. It's slash rad and you will be in the small but select crowd of assembled Litopia literati ce soir. Uh, how was your jubilee, Ali?
3: Oh, marvellous! No, it's completely dry. But then I did watch it from indoors. Sat there and watched my little boat race, or at least um, regatta.
0: Yeah, a thousand. And wearing bucks. a silly
3: hat and, and waving my flag.
0: Oh, <laughs> it's so British, isn't it? But
3: I got to. to it's, the, it's kind to of the right it's thing.
0: meaningless yeah. and pathetic, but but, but endearingly mm. British as well. <laughs>
3: Lovely. Eight strawberries.
1: What else could I do? You want me? Well, come on and break the door down. I'll be waiting with a bun and a pack of
0: sandwiches. Uh, If you're listening to the show right now, uh, you're probably listening as a recording. Do remember, please, you can get all, not just Latopia After Dark, but all our shows via iTunes. Um, If you sign up, it's, it's called subscribe, but it's actually free. If you do that, you can download them all onto your computer, onto your iPhone or your iPad, and you can listen whenever and wherever you want. We call it Litopia in your pocket. I'm delighted to announce tonight that our star guest is none other than R.J. Ellery, the multi-award winning author of Candle Ghost Heart, A Quiet Vendetta, City of Lies... A Quiet Belief in Angels, I'm sure you've heard of that one. It's sold absolute millions of copies. A Simple Act of Violence, The Anniversary Man, Saints of New York. His books are available in 23 languages. Uh, welcome, RJ, or if I may,
1: Roger. Roger, yes. RJ is something that was invented by publishers and what they refer to me... As in France, but but yes, Roger is my name.
0: Why did a publisher call you that? Because normally it's it's to disguise the sex of the author.
1: Yeah, there was a because uh, the first three books I published under my full name, Roger John Ellery, um, in some kind of vague effort to give people the impression that perhaps I was an American. Um, because I think if you use three names, you can be a, a presidential assassin, and, and you know <laughs> you, g- you generally sound quite a little bit more American than English. Uh, after the publication of three books, there was a conversation that went on between the sales director of my publishing company and the chief buyer of Waterston's at the time. Oh, yeah. And the sales director of my publishing company asked the chief buyer why he felt that perhaps people weren't as, buying as many of my books as possible. And he said, because his name's too bloody long. That was his response. So my sales director acting on that single report decided to initialise me, thereby losing my gender. So I, I turn up now to events and people expect an American girl and they're always tra- tragically disappointed.
0: That's extraordinary, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? I mean, have you thought about changing your back again or are you kind of stuck with it now?
1: No, I'm kind of stuck with it now, and I I really have no issue with it. I mean, I've spent the last years, last nine years, being called Elroy.
2: So um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> when somebody said when somebody actually says Ellery, it's it's actually quite a win for me. Quite, yes. I feel quite chuffed. You uh. could
2: put the third on the end, and that would really feel the American thing, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> RJ Ellery the third, and then it would be would, uh, no worries. Would.
1: Or junior.
2: Or oh, junior, that would work too.
0: <laughs> Elroy sort of sounds like a bullfighter, doesn't it? Sort of turn up in full well, cape and matador outfit.
1: Obviously, there's uh, James Elroy, the author of you yeah. know the Cold Six Thousand and L.A. Confidential, yeah. and um, he um, he was interviewed by a good friend of mine. There's a, there's a, a French um, crime and, and noir magazine um, called Alibi. Alibi, which is published in France it's a quarterly magazine it's it's about a year and a half old and the the chief reporter who's actually become a friend of mine went to America to interview James Elroy and he said who's this English guy using an anagram of my name
2: and Mark
1: <laughs> basically said to explain to him that it was my real name and Elroy apparently gave me his blessing but there are two reporters one in the north of France and one in the south of France and one basically put in his column that I'm using a pseudonym for free publicity, um, really? essentially an anagram of Elroy. And the other journalist is saying, no, 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 it's definitely his, his real name. So I met the journalist who was saying that I was using a, uh, a synonym, uh, an anagram, and, and I said, look, next time I come, I'm going to bring my birth certificate and show you. And he says, for 15 euros, I can get you a birth certificate that says I'm Lee Harvey Oswald. So <laughs> even, if you, even if you bring ah. your birth certificate, I still don't believe you, you know.
0: Now, I've been looking at some pictures of you today because we're actually uh, doing some video now live. We're not showing you live, but uh, we are showing one or two pictures of you on the okay. internet. And i got to say, you actually you look well hard. Are, are, you, are you hard? Are you hard?
1: <laughs> I'm from Birmingham. Yeah, we're all... <laughs> we just fight all the time. We drink. Most of us don't have any t- um, and we fight each other all the time. You know, even our best friends we, we we greet each other with with fisticuffs. Really? No, I mean I don't I don't know, <laughs> I don't know why you have the impression why my photographs give you the impression that I'm hard. No, I'm actually quite a serious literary sort of person. Really, oh quite my. sensitive. Sensitive 90s kind of guy, in honestly. Well, the,
0: the beard <laughs> seems to come and go. And mine, mine does too. Any reason? To we well, do look quite hard. Uh,
2: just looking at the website and yeah. your biography page. Yeah, you do look quite hard. Yeah. Like you're looking at me.
0: Okay, Is exactly. that Hard bloke. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's yeah.
3: it. I thought you looked a bit like a camel, actually, Roger. <laughs> no, no, no. That's the
0: wrong picture you're looking at, Ali.
1: <laughs> oh, is
3: it? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Is that big no, of protruding I, when lower lip? When, me.
1: when I met my wife 20-something years ago, I had a beard, and and she's a beard fan. So a couple of Years ago she says you got to get the beard back because so and so and so and so. So we have a Greek a Greek marriage. We definitely have a Greek marriage, my wife and I, so i I got the beard back. Yes.
2: Beard fan is almost a song by Budgie
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> And you're ginger too, aren't you? You're ginger or I should say yeah, red oh yes. So yes, are all I, the cliches true. Have you got you've got a temper? Uh,
1: well, it was interesting. I was in, where was I? I was in Canada uh, a couple of weeks ago at a festival in a place called Knowlton, which is north of Montreal. And there was a, a sort of meet and greet in an art gallery. And there was a book and it was just called Red. And it was a collection of photographs of people from that area with red hair. Huh. Inside the front cover, there were all of these very, very old sort of mythical and and legendary Ideas about redheaded people. The Greeks believe that redheaded people, when they die, become vampires.
0: Hmm.
1: <laughs> now, I never knew that. Yes, absolutely. And uh, there's a very, very old English legend that in times of great stress or strife internationally, Britain will always be saved by a redhead. And they noted Elizabeth I and Churchill and other such people and as. Probably this. And probably Arthur, too. And apparently 2% of the population of the planet are redheads and yet um, recognized geniuses when listed 26% of them are redheads oh, case case proven really case closed mm. so i know that there's violent violent gingerism and 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 racism against gingers and it's completely unfounded completely unacceptable and when we die we're going to come back as vampires and bite
2: there it was, it was talk that the kind of the ginger gene was dying out a few years ago, wasn't there? Yes. And yet, uh, I don't know about uh, what well, you've noticed, but I've seen more and more very, you know, ginger children around lately than I've seen for a long, not, long time.
1: I'm not, I'm not responsible. I'm not responsible.
2: <laughs> 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 yes, you, sir.
1: And and watch. I said to my wife, I said, the ginger gene is dying out. I feel a sort of a basic sort of almost genetic sense of responsibility to procreate as much as I can. And she said under no circumstances. So um, she wasn't party. to. She wasn't, you know, in favour of that idea. I did I did propose the idea, but no, no, it was unacceptable.
2: Absolutely 50 quid a pop down your local bank, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Apparently. There you Apparently, go. That, that's the route. How do you know, Dave? Then, a little bit of cash on the side.
1: But then let me ask you this question, Dave. How many women go to that particular facility and say, under no circumstances do I want anything but a ginger? I don't think there's many
2: you know what? I've never done that particular piece of research. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm putting it on the list uh, now. I right, I'm thinking about yeah. penguin sex. I'm doing it. That's, yeah,
1: a, that's, the next. that's a radio programme all by itself, that
2: one. <laughs> I think it's definitely a Radio 4
1: programme.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Roger, there are little bits and pieces of biography dotted about the web. There's no one sort of really big, comprehensive, coherent thing. But right. one, one thing that really does jump out... Um, about your early years, is that you were an orphan. Yeah. Uh,
1: which, which you know, people seem to, to find curious and interesting and, and they sort of read about my childhood or I tell them about my childhood and it seems incredibly Dickensian. Mm. Um, an interesting thing happened quite recently on that subject. I went to, uh, well, it was about three years ago, I went to Georgia with a Channel 4 uh, film crew to make a little documentary about A Quiet Belief in Angels. Mm. And I was asked by a a Sunday newspaper travel supplement to take some photographs and write a couple of thousand words as a sort of travelogue regarding my experiences of going to Georgia. So I did this, um, and it was published in the newspaper, And about three or four days after it was published, I received an email from quote Uncle Bill. Hmm. And Uncle Bill was the husband of my mother's best friend, Linda. Uh, Linda and my mother, my mother's name was Carol. Linda and Carol, as as young women, attended drama college together in the late 1960s in Birmingham. And then when I was born in 1965, I was put up for, uh, sent to a foster family for 18 months. And um, Lynn and Carol basically lost touch. And then in 1971, my mother died. Um, so they, they obviously weren't in communication but um bill emailed me and said you know it just happened that linda was on her way back to to devon which was where they lived via ludlow and they stopped at a petrol station and picked up a copy of this newspaper and saw my name and it's a relatively unusual surname and thought no no it can't be because they (laughs) looked after us for a few weeks after my mother died so he emailed me and and obviously nearly 35 nearly 40 years had gone by without us having spoken to each other, seen each other or anything else, Uh, I discovered that they lived about 40 miles. Not only did they live about 40 miles from my brother um, in Devon, Mm. but also the following week I was due to attend a library event about 15 miles from where they lived. So we had a reunion and they brought along photographs of my mother, which I'd never seen, photographs of my grandfather, who I'd never seen because he drowned in 1957 before I was born. And they brought photographs of my brother and I when we were children, which I'd never seen. So I now have a bundle of photographs. Um, I also had the opportunity to go down to Cornwall with my wife and my son to see Uncle Bill um because literally weeks after we we had this sort of reunion, he contracted cancer, which was very aggressive, very, very quick, and he was dead within three months. Jeez. but he he got to to actually meet my wife and son, and he told me that for years they'd tried to adopt us huh. but because because of financial reasons and because of this and because of that they couldn't and and for thirty five years he had been plagued by this horrible horrible idea that, that something dreadful had happened to us mm. and so it was a tremendous relief to him literally on his deathbed Jeez. to find out not, not only were we okay we were both married we both were fathers we both were raising families and, and doing okay in life you know
0: so you you got a family back briefly only to have it taken away again
1: well, yeah, I mean, we weren't related, obviously, but but they were they were obviously important uh, figures from our childhood. And and Linda, who I'm still in touch with uh, on a reasonably frequent basis, uh, was was obviously my mother's best friend. And he's the only person I've ever met who knew my father's name. And hmm. so I discovered my father's name about three years ago. Wow made the decision not to, to, to look him out, uh, to look him up, but um, I did discover his name, which was kind of interesting. And the other thing I found out, which was also fascinating, is that my older brother and I, because we were separated for a good 15 years, my brother and I, yeah. and he found me, uh, interestingly enough, when my first novel was published. Gee. He had, he moved to France and was, was travelling around France for about six months. And then he moved to Cornwall and became a trawler fisherman. For 13 years, and then he walked into a branch of Asda in Truro in 2003 and saw my first novel. Hmm. Read it. Read it. Wrote to my publisher, saying, "Please, can you pass on these details to this author? Jeez. I'm his brother." They passed the details on to me, and he and I got back in touch. That was in 2003, and we hadn't seen each other since 1990. Um, and uh, we found we had always believed. Uh, with with certainty that we had different fathers, my brother and I, my older brother and I. And we discovered from from Linda that not only did we have the same father, huh. but we have a younger brother from a different father. Christ. Um Who's essentially our, our stepbrother or half-brother or whatever you want to call him. Um, but he was adopted at birth, so obviously he changed his family name and he's relatively untraceable because we don't have any living antecedents or decedents or whatever you call them. No no other relatives who can help us, you see. So, so all this... I
0: mean, you're a very driven person. All this, I'm guessing, made you very self-reliant, did it?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, people people talk about this, this quote, tremendous hardship, you know, not knowing your father, losing your mother at seven, being sent to an orphanage for nine years and this and that and the other. But, you know, difficulty or, or, or hardship is a purely relative thing, you know. Um, I had a more than adequate education. I mean, I didn't gain any qualifications particularly, and I didn't go to college or university. I left school at 16 and returned to Birmingham and got into trouble and ended up in 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 prison. But the fact of the matter is that I attended a school that had a remarkably good library where they encouraged me to read, and I found this just immense passion for reading and read voraciously as a child. I was never without a book. I didn't know you went to prison. Yes, I was. Oh, I mean, I went to prison. I, I My brother and I, um, after my grandmother died in 1982, we were living in a suburb of Birmingham. The house was owned outright by my grandmother, but but she owed a phenomenal amount of money in unpaid telephone bills and electricity bills and, and water bills and this and that and the other. My brother was 17, I was 16. Um, we didn't have any qualifications. We were ineligible for any kind of... Um, doll money or supplementary benefit, mm-hmm. and the electricity, the gas, and the water were disconnected. So we lived basically, we squatted in, in a in a house in the winter. So we decided um, that it would be a good idea to to become uh, self sufficient by climbing over uh, a fence into a local allotment and and stealing vegetables, which we did. We then proceeded to to wash these vegetables as best we could with water that we took from the next door neighbours, and uh, then stick a fork in them and try and cook them over a Caligas stove. So essentially sort of roasted vegetables over a Caligas flame. When we got bored of this, we decided that it would be a particularly smart idea to climb over the wall of a local Carmelite monastery and still eight chickens and a 56-pound bag of chicken feed, which we proceeded to do, dressed from head to foot in black balaclavas and the lots. Two teenagers herring across the vicarage lawn, one with a rucksack with eight live chickens inside, um, and a 56-pound... 56 pounds of chicken feed is not light. 56-pound bag of chicken feed... uh, you know, a hand on each side, trying to escape across this lawn. Anyway, we lived in a very, very old house. And there was a stone-floored, stone-ceilinged room in the back. Uh, the house was built in the 1800s, and it had hooks in the ceiling for me, and it was like a cold storage room. Yeah. And we covered the floor with with grass and dirt, basically, and put the chickens inside this room in the house, thinking that they would then lay eggs and we'd be able to have eggs and with our roasted vegetables. The following day, uh, out of sheer desperation, we decided we were going to kill one of these chickens and eat it, which we did. Uh, And it was an old laying hen, so it was incredibly stringy. And trying to cook that over an oak fire in the garden was an interesting experience. (laughs) So we did this. You you were feral, Um, weren't you? Actually leading a feral lifestyle. We really really were, yeah. Feral teenagers. Anyway, the following day, um, I went down to the back of the house and looked through the back door window, and there were three or four policemen in the garden... And I'm thinking, how on earth did these policemen end up in the garden? And this policewoman knocked on the window and she says, can you open the door? We need to ask you a question about stolen roof tiles. Oh, dear. And I said, I beg your pardon. And she said, stolen roof tiles. And I'm thinking, what's stolen roof tiles? Anyway, this was merely a ploy to be invited into the house because they're if, if they're invited into the house, they don't need a search warrant. Um, maybe the law has changed, but in 1982, this was case. So we uh, I opened the back door and they, they burst into the house, closely followed by three nuns <laughs> in, in, in full habit, who then proceeded to identify the remaining seven surviving chickens by name. <laughs> And the name of the chickens, uh, the chickens have been named after provinces in Canada. <laughs> and they wanted to know what had happened to Alberta. <laughs> and we had to admit to the nuns that we'd actually eaten Alberta. Now, th- this has an interesting addendum, this story, very funny little addendum, which I didn't understand at the time. When I was in Canada last week, I did a series of events in, in Montreal and Quebec City. And I told this story and the Canadians wanted to know which province I had eaten. <laughs> and I told them Alberta, and it produced a riot of laughter that went on for several minutes, and I was completely bemused. I didn't understand what had happened. Apparently, Alberta, according to the Canadians, is the redneck state, and it's known to be particularly greasy and of low IQ, low intellect, no culture, and it's the state where the, the current prime minister comes from. There you go. So... Alberta, he's looked upon with 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 uh, so so obviously a, a huge success, huge enjoyment, it's, and huge. As the like uh, Colonel Sanders state, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. To find out that the that, that their guest author ate that particular province. I'm oh, amazed! amazed
0: they sent that you to Jug for that. I mean, that it sounds, it sounds like well, it does sound Dickens, you know. You might have been well, transported okay. for it.
1: I, I later um, learned that there was um, they went in the in the law books I mean we were we were under the Thatcher government at the time and I think Willie Whitelaw was the the justice secretary and I think they had a policy in force at the time um, about the short, sharp shock for mm. delinquent teenagers. Oh, yeah. But I did also hear that there was a law that they found dating back from the 13 or 1400s, which said that if you obtain poultry or livestock illegally from oh, a religious my. fraternity... Have your, your, a, your
0: hands chopped off or something.
1: Well, it carried a mandatory custodial sentence, yeah, so they had to yeah. enact this law because the law had never been repealed, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, it did work. Um, it did divert me from a life of crime. You know, I like to think that had I not been given that particular wake-up call, then I would have gone on to be the head of um, a major uh, illegal poultry empire. Yeah. big time sort of a cross chicken between wrestling. A, yeah, sort of a cross between Don Corleone and Bernard Matthews. Very good.
0: I think you've told this story before, haven't you? That's a very good end line, that is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you then went on to become what I can only call a ferocious autodidact. I mean, you didn't go to university like me, no. like me, but you did teach yourself all kinds of things. Um, how, why, what motivated you?
1: I think um, just a, a fundamental curiosity, a fundamental inquisitiveness about life, you know. Um, I think as a child, you know, in, in in boarding school, in orphanage, you know, literally miles away from anywhere in the wilds of Oxfordshire, sort of four miles to the nearest telephone box, um, and, and being sort of independent and being relatively isolated. It was a somewhat solitary life. I also read voraciously. And I think when you read, you know, questions are often posed in books, and you do come away moved, you know, uh, emotionally and mentally, and, and perhaps spiritually by the things that you read. Mm. I think reading is, is, is the greatest way to cultivate an imagination, especially in children. Um, and so obviously, I think, uh, you know, it was a natural, a natural progression, to be in a situation where I was asking myself questions, you know, why was it not easy for me to make friends? Why did I feel awkward around people? You know, I mean, I I suffered terrible eczema as a kid, and I was a bedwetter until I was 13. I was a bit of a nervous wreck, you know. Mm -hmm. And I I, I think I was just trying to better understand, you know, the consequences of of my personal circumstances, I think, for, for want of a better explanation. So, I, I I went to books you know I didn't necessarily consider myself particularly bookish and I certainly wasn't in any way shape or form academically gifted but I was certainly very inquisitive and I wanted to know this and I wanted to know that and I was fascinated by other cultures and I was fascinated by history. I remember spending literally hours in the in the school library reading national Geographic magazines and um, you know just just fascinated by other cultures and fascinated by you know, Roman history and, and, and Greek history and mythology and legends and Beowulf and medieval British history, English and the, history. And the black ladies, uh,
0: very large breasts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've yes, all yes, done that. Absolutely. Your attention, please. Latopia
2: needs your help. For the cost of a cappuccino a week, you can help us stay on the air. Click on the support us link now. <laughs>
0: Uh, the chat room has been wrapped yes. actually listen, listening to Roger, hasn't it? Oh,
3: absolutely. I'm loving these stories. I was just thinking that if you were telling that story, it would have been about a courgette called
0: Alberta. Oh, yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm vegan.
0: Couldn't have I'm
3: been a vegan um, Yeah, they're, they're loving this. Um, in fact, um, Jay Ronquist saying that loving it, he's loving it so much. He's uh, too interested to write very much. He has to be a little <laughs> silent. Um, <laughs> Tyler loves the story about the long lost brother reunited who thinks that's uh, quite intriguing. And they're all saying about how you love to tell stories. It's clear are well, you a writer. Yeah, so, really is. Uh, yeah, so, no they're yes. having fun
0: in the chat room. Yeah, OK, jigger up the chat room, Ali, and tell them we need some damn good title <laughs> suggestions. I think we've already had some very Got good one. themes, actually, from, from Roger. I just want to pick this thing up about um, you getting into books as a way of sort of interpreting the world, understanding yourself, learning about, you know, the the... Bigger world out there. Sure. It's, as a sort of, um, I don't know, really, as an escape, you know, as a progression. Well, now, yes. I w- contrast that, please, Roger. Contrast that with something that I've only just found out about today um, because I've been reading your blog about yes. half a dozen groups on Facebook called I Hate Reading. Yes. I didn't even know they existed.
1: Yes, and they have a combined membership that now I think is in excess of 10% of the population of this country. Good God. I mean, what's what's gone wrong? I think that in the late 1950s and early 1960s, um, vest, vested interest psychology was permitted entry into the education system. And we stopped... Um, concentrating and focusing on literacy, basic literacy and basic numeracy. I think the way in which Romans, the Roman culture educated their children was was very simple. You know, you concentrate on literacy and numeracy, Greek and Latin and, and, and numeracy until they're 12. Then you find the particular area of interest or natural leaning of the child and you focus on that, allowing them to express their own interest. Meanwhile, supplementing that with basic, um, areas of, of general knowledge and and science and this and that and the other. And so you basically have someone at 15, 16 years old who feels like they have a vocation in life. Mm -hmm. What we did with the education system is we started to focus on quote unquote results, statistics, qualifications. Now, corrupt government with vested interest in an effort to get themselves re-elected, with, edu- <coughs> with education being a particular point of interest for the vast majority of voters, oh, yeah. instead of concentrating on funding teachers and giving them the space and time to to actually do what they're capable of doing and, and, and pursue their own particular vocation, which is teaching one of the most noble professions in any culture, they started to drop the standards in order to improve statistics. And they started to short-circuit and introduced um, psychology-orientated quote-unquote teaching methods which actually are ineffective. Um, And we have succeeded in graduating perhaps now the third generation of people who do not understand reading as a leisure or pleasure activity. We've also focused on television we've also focused on internet and audiovisual stimuli audio visual entertainment my grandmother used to say something to me she used to say the best pictures are on the wireless Yep. yep. and that idea that great storytelling can't take place in the pages of the book because it's dull or it's boring or this and that and the other is completely false The difference fundamentally between a book and a film, which is why you can never really successfully adapt a book into a film, is that a great deal of books concentrate primarily on what people think and feel, whereas films primarily are about what people do and say. The thing about a book is that you contribute to it. You contribute the pictures. You contribute the images. It's why when you read a book and then see the film, you go, no, 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 That should be James Mason, not Harrison Ford. Or whatever, You also see a film and you go, well, hang on a minute, what about the scene with the dog and he had two earlier wives and what happened with that situation with the brother and so and so and so? The amount of things that get subtracted from a book in order to collapse the story into 90 minutes. And the thing about a film is that you're presented with the characters, the way that they look, their dialect, their language, their their body language, their clothes, the music, the ambience, the lighting. Everything is prevented, presented to you as, a, as, as literally a complete package whereas with a book you have that sort of slow motion unfolding that you contribute to so that when you finish a book you feel as though you've been part of it i mean i have a very very simplistic view about fiction i think there's three novels i think there's really only three novels there's your page turn and this is irrespective of genre irrespective of when the book was written irrespective of the gener- genre uh, the gender of the author or the subject matter I think you have your page turning potboiler which is the kind of novel that presents you with an unresolved question at the beginning of the book and in order to, to get an answer to that question you have to read the book. The satisfaction derived from that book is the transient entertainment of reading that story and the denouement, the untying of the knot, the resolution which gives you a sense of closure. That would be Hagatha Christie. Well, yeah, and, and and a huge amount of contemporary certainly American and British uh, crime thrillers Mm -hmm. are really following that same sort of pattern. I'm not going to say formula because I don't know necessarily that they are formulaic, but they certainly follow that same pattern. They're not the sorts of books that you read for the three pages of scintillating prose about the number of of colours you find in in autumn leaves in Vermont. They're books that you read for the entertainment. They tend to be relatively fast-paced. Something of significant happens every pages and it keeps you glued literally to the pages the second type of novel is is we could what is sometimes snobbishly referred to as literary fiction um i think this is the kind of book where the author has spent as much time and care over how something is said as well as what is said i mean an example of this for me i know a very very successful book and won a pulitzer but but it is also a marmite book um you know half the people don't get it and throw it back at you and say, this is unreadable. Um, and this is a book called The Shipping News by Annie Prue, which, which oh, yeah. is a personal favourite of mine. And she basically defies all the rules of syntax and grammar, and she doesn't use definite articles. And it's like W. Somerset said, you know, there's only three rules for writing. Unfortunately, no one will ever agree what they are. She basically, if there were any rules, has thrown them out the window. And she's written this extraordinary book, beautifully written, the most scintillating pro wonderful wonderful phrases she employs an almost poetic rhythm to it but story wise it's actually very simple a stupid guy marries a promiscuous girl they have a couple of kids the the woman dies in a car crash and he moves house i mean that's it there is no twist in the tale there is no it's almost like a vignette of somebody's life but it's just wonderfully evoked and 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 superbly written and then you get the the third category And the third category is something quite extraordinary. I was asked once at a literary festival, um, how I would define a classic, which I think is a very, very interesting question because a a classic by definition does not mean an old book. A classic by definition does not mean written by Emily Bronte or Charles Dickens or the brother uh, or or Dostoevsky or whatever. A classic is that which the reader considers is a classic. And again, it's irrespective of of genre, irrespective of author, gender, irrespective of subject matter. One person can consider that um, Doctor Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss is a classic because it's it's something about their life. It's it's got some quality about it that is hugely important in their life. So I started to think about this: how would you define a classic? And I came to the conclusion, certainly for me, that a classic could be defined as. Novel that presents you with a narrative so compelling you can't read it fast enough, yet is written so beautifully you can't read it slowly enough, and you and you are caught in a limbo. It's a book that you almost subconsciously ration yourself to because if you don't ration yourself, you're going to finish it today, and if you finish it, it, won't be any tomorrow.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about that. I, I was thinking about the um, the shipping news, which is a stunning book. It it really. Um... It was a game changer for me, actually, because it is just so different from anything yes. else you've read. And I, I don't think—I mean, I don't think she's written a bad book. I think uh, there's so many I, everything of hers I've ever read. I love the short stories, and yeah. um, I've just put on to the the, um, the chat room there. Uh, the old ace in the hole is oh, yes. Superb. absolutely Superb. stunning book. You know, you, you just. You're just involved in it, and you can. She just, with a few words, just draws these pictures in your head that are yeah. absolutely crystal clear. You know, Bob Dollar yeah. sitting on the porch of the broken-down shack, looking out over the, you know, over the wilds, and you can just see it and hear it and smell it. It's extraordinary, and she does it with very few words. And that turn of phrases, there uh, was one of them, is his um, deflated football face, and yeah. you can just hey, this guy with the themed kind of... Oval American football, slightly lined face. Yeah, it's, it's
1: I know, so absolutely extraordinary. extraordinary. And the other, the other wonderful thing about Annie Prue is that um, Postcards, which was the first book she published, she wrote when she was fifty-six. The second yeah. book was The Shipping News, and it went on to win the National Book Award, the Irish <laughs> Times Award, and the Pulitzer. And there's um, talking about her short stories, um, Close Range and Bad Dirt. There's one short story I think called Fifty Five Miles to the Nearest Gas Pump. And it's one of the most chilling and extraordinary accounts of a serial killer in a page. That's right, yeah, yeah. And it leaves you utterly cold and utterly gobsmacked, literally gobsmacked. The woman gobsmacked me in a page. Extraordinary writer.
2: Yeah, and then she can go to the ho- the, the season of the, the Hot Tubs. Do you remember the one about The Hot Tubs?
1: Yes, I know. And the guy has the
2: huge cauldron with the fire underneath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this just... You know, Fantastic.
0: Roger, you seem to be kind of, I don't know, an obsessive, compulsive person. You wrote... Well, I've got evidence for this, all right? You, you wrote 22 novels, most yes. of them in longhand, yes. before you even got your first one published. I mean, that, yes. that bespeaks an extraordinary, I don't know what, really, commitment, uh, belief in yourself, possibly, or just obsession?
1: Um, I think um, just this extraordinary desire to accomplish something. There was something my grandmother... My grandmother was a very interesting lady. She was secretary to bomber Harris oh,
0: yeah.
1: um, for a while, and then she worked in the war office um, under one of the administrative staff. And um, she survived the war. She lost her husband in 57. She had an only child, my mother, who who died at 28. So she had a life that was really burdened with with grief um and she said to me i remember as a child she said don't ever be one of those people who lead a what if life you know what if what what, what would have happened had i asked her to marry me and i think that sort of stayed with me um that idea that you know i had to do something i had to it's, it's almost like um a desperate need to make your presence felt. To yes. feel as though you matter. Yes. Do you know what I
0: mean? Significance. I do. Uh, another quote from your uh, amazing blog, actually. You don't blog a lot. It's probably been about six months since you last no, blogged. No, I, sort
1: of, I, I sort of gave up when people stopped responding and I thought, this is an awful... I put a lot of stuff on Facebook. Before you go into the other quotes, I just want to say yeah. hello to a very good friend of mine who has just picked it up from me uh, My my great friend Candice... Hello, Candice. Anyway, please, carry on.
0: Not at all. We, we do play dedications too, if you like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, th- I don't know what this says about you. It makes you out to be an extraordinary person. I'm not sure in a good way or a bad way. I do not get depressed. I do not get exhausted. I do not run out of patience with people, you say. I never agree mm. to do something I don't want to do. I allocate so many hours per day for writing, and regardless of how I feel, I do that work. That's why... I'm 18 months ahead of my schedule. I do not get stressed. I do not need a holiday. I do not have accidents nor get ill. I do not get colds, even when I associate with people who have colds and flu. Mm -hmm. What is going on here? (laughs) And can I have some of it, please?
1: I think that there's a wonderful, wonderful... um, It's an old Japanese proverb. um, The man who lives forever is the man who knows what he's doing tomorrow. Right. Right. And I am a firm believer in, in um, I, I think there's two two things I, I feel are important truths. Well, let me put it this way. I don't think that anybody has a monopoly on the truth. I think there's truth everywhere in life. I think you're just likely to find a, a, a nugget of truth in the Bible, the Quran, as you are in an article from Cosmos. Because all have been written by human beings who have perceptions and have ideas and have thoughts and have realizations. So I think I've sort of been a sponge for ideas throughout my life, and I've read a vast quantity of books and 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 interviews with people and this and that and the other. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's two things that really struck me, and for the life of me, I can't remember where I really do stick with me. One is that if you want to be happy, then you should spend the vast majority of your time trying to make others happy. Mm. And the second one is that nobody ever gets to the end of their life and thinks of all the people that they should have been meaner to. Yep. So I think that if you live your life with an effort to do right by people that you love and the people that you care for. If you live life with a view to accepting responsibility and doing your utmost to fulfill that responsibility, but being honest when you can't continue that responsibility, etc. I think if you always are willing to communicate, if you are always open-minded, if you're always willing to listen to another person's point of view, if you always um, do the best you can to... To take care of things well and do things as a professional to professional standards, I think it gives you a certain degree of—I don't know—a certain bulletproof quality. But
0: Roger, Roger, I mean, I'm—I'm I'm sorry to say this, and it may come as a shock, but you're only human, and you know, <laughs> and humans do, do get depressed sometimes. We do. Are you? I, I mean, I, honestly, do you never get depressed, or do you, do you just hide this from
1: yourself? Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels All right, there you go. No, no. I mean, I, I kind of have, um, when I'm not traveling, and I travel extensively because I'm on tour, you know, pretty much half the year. I mean, last year I did 49 cities in a country for seven months and I was home for 17 days. And it can be exhausting. You know, the thing, it sounds incredibly sexy and it sounds incredibly romantic, but the thing that you have to remember is that every night, especially when you're in a foreign country, every, every night you end up basically walking into an empty hotel room. There's this wonderful, <laughs> interview with BB King um, a few years ago I think it was his 75th birthday or his 80th birthday or something and he said he was asked by the interviewer you've you know the interviewer you've led this extraordinary life you've recorded over 100 LPS 100 albums you've you've played with everybody from Howlin' Wolf and Lead Belly uh, muddy waters to you know Eric Clapton Celine Dion goodness knows who else you fathered some like 14 children from, you've made and lost a million dollars, you know, and now you spend your life essentially touring. What's the most abiding memory of your extraordinary career? And he sort of smiled sardonically and said, airport lounges and empty hotel rooms. Christ. So I don't wish to, <laughs> to sort of give that pessimistic plant on it, but there is that element of you know, you are on the road, you are traveling, you are on your own, especially when you're in a foreign country and you don't speak the language. So it can be like that. But, you know, the thing that never escapes me, the thing that never escapes me is from the moment I put pen to paper to the moment I got a publishing contract was 15 years and 23 novels. I've just released my 10th book in England. And as you said, these books are now available in 24 languages. I just spent... Uh, a week in France, and and met some extraordinary people, some wonderful people, you know, people that I feel one in particular, uh, the young lady that we mentioned earlier, Candice, I met her and we clicked, and there was it was I know that we'll be friends for the rest of our lives because we have an interest in films and books, and you meet people all over the world that you become friends with, French publishers, my American publishers. The story I told you earlier about meeting the guy at JFK Airport. Who took me to frank sinatra's bar and i had a manhattan made by frank sinatra's bartender the following morning i went to my publisher's offices and i met my publicist for the first time it was tuesday morning nine o'clock and i said when's our first meeting and he said saturday and i said what are we doing for four days and he says i'm going to walk you through new york And we ate some of the best food I've ever eaten. We saw some great live bands. I went to Ellis Island. I went to Battery City. I went to the World Trade Center. I went all over New York. I walked the length of Fifth and Sixth Avenue until 3 o'clock in the morning. And I had a wonderful, almost life-changing experience, which contributed greatly to me then being able to write books about New York with far more authenticity and credibility. I am doing this, like John Lennon said find something that you love and you'll never work another day and I'm passionate about what I do and I'm Mm -hmm. passionate about people and I'm passionate about friendships I'm passionate about music you know and I'm kind of a little bit crazy maybe but that's just kind of the way I am I think I'm trying to live five lifetimes in one life
0: like Latopia then click the like button to share us with your friends on Facebook it's what friends are for. You started pretty early on, actually, writing books about America. You were told, you were given very good advice, best possible advice from the publishing business, forget about it, you're British, you know, you're, you're a brummy. you don't know the uh, mean streets of New York and San Francisco and all the rest of it. You can't write that kind of stuff. You didn't listen to the advice, you kept on doing it, and you succeeded. Why... Again, (laughs) that does say something about you as a person, but why did you decide to do that? Because it wasn't the easy option, was it? Well,
1: I'll tell you what happened. I wrote 22 novels in six years between 1987 and 1993, and I accumulated over 600 rejection letters. Um, In 1993, in the middle of my 22nd novel, I came to the conclusion that I obviously was not cut out for this, and it was not going to work. And... I stopped writing for eight years. I then, I took a job. I'd I, I gotten myself into a staggering amount of personal debt, over 80,000 pounds, most of it on credit cards. And I took a job that paid me enough just literally to, to pay the interest on these credit cards. And it was it was a job in a, in a freight company, the sort of ta- job that you can do if you're a monkey with a tie. Yeah. I did the job simply to earn money. And I was there at work on the day that 9-11 happened. Mm. And we watched this thing unfold live on the internet. And um, I came away with three ghosts, if you want, for want of a better expression. The first one was the absolute certainty that it was an inside job.
0: Mm.
1: No, No question about it. Um, It it was uh, uh, as big a lie as as the assassination of Kennedy. Bigger. The second thing was that this this spectre that haunted me, this ghost that haunted me, this idea that the better part of 3,000 people went to work one morning and didn't go home. And I thought about the guy on the 48th floor who was in love with the girl on the 34th floor, and he'd gone up in the elevator with her every day for three months, and he'd never once had the nerve to ask her for a cup of coffee. I thought about the girl on the 15th floor who was going to go home and tell her boyfriend that she really wanted to have a baby and it was time to talk about it. I thought about the guy on the 62nd floor of World Trade Center 2 who had an engagement ring in his pocket and was going to propose to his girlfriend that night at supper time. I thought of it, all these incomplete dreams, these incomplete aspirations, all these might have been's and what ifs, and the procrastination that people have. And, you know, there's this total we do in in France when I'm there, glory and honor. It's almost like that idea that you should just grit your teeth, clench your fists, be brave and do it regardless. And the third thing was this from my grandmother when she said, don't be one of those people that lead a what if life. So I thought to myself, you know, I'm 30 something years old and um, I really need to do something. I can't. Do this job any longer. I'm miserably unhappy doing this job. Mm. And um, I looked back at my life and thought, where was I happiest? And um, I thought I was happiness when I was writing. Mm. The following day, I started writing again, and I wrote three novels. And simultaneously, I came across a quote from Benjamin Disraeli. It said simply, success is entirely dependent upon constancy of course. And I thought, maybe I just didn't try hard enough. Maybe I just need to exist. So wrote three books and the middle one of which was picked up by a brave British editor who is still my my editor and he against all odds and it took him five months to convince his company to contract it but he did it and he is... um, still my editor ironically coincidentally i go to london tomorrow morning to meet with him because we're discussing editorial changes to book number 11 which is due out in june of next year
0: that's, that's very inspiring i mean it's really inspiring actually it's a message to all all writers because it is a lonely job and you know you don't have other people mostly
1: to yeah, say come on absolutely. you can, you I can mean, do it you you have that uh, that wonderful quote from paul Oster, who said that being a writer and i think that anyone in any field of the creative arts. And it, it applies to anyone who's doing anything in a competitive industry as well, even journalism and and you know, someone who wants to be an architect or an engineer. Um, you know, you don't so much choose to be a writer as get chosen. And once you've reconciled yourself to the fact that you're pretty much useless for anything else, mm-hmm. you also have to accept that you're gonna walk a relatively long and lonely road um for the rest of your life. And and that's something that you have to accept. Yeah. If you're going to do, I mean, I watched um, Black Swan recently. and watched it and he said you should watch it because my my grandmother was a ballet teacher and I actually studied ballet between four and eight years old. And, and my son wanted to go to a ballet, so I took him to a ballet when he was here on half term and I watched Black Swan. And any film I, I watch like that, regardless of the subject matter, when it deals with people who have that passion, who have that that drive, that mm. almost obsessive, compulsive, uncontrollable drive to do something and to achieve something—that's really inspirational to me. And it's athletics, art, music. I mean, I'm studying guitar. Moments it takes ten thousand hours. I write three thousand words a day, and then I practice guitar for three hours. I'm the same about learning a musical instrument as I am writing books now. And I only started this three years Roger, ago.
0: You're an outlier. You're an outlier. That's where you are. You're an outlier. Ali, we need to catch up with the chat room, please.
3: Crime um, Foot wanted to know whether you um, prefer to find stories from real life um, or do you actually prefer to avoid references to actual events?
1: No, I mean, I write books that are... that, that fully incorporates actual historical events. I mean... The Quiet Vendetta deals with 50 years of the Mafia, and it deals with all five New York families. It deals with uh, the Cattellari's War. It deals with, you know, actual historical events. It talks about Marilyn Monroe and the Mafia's involvement, Kennedys, and uh, all the thing. You know, um, Candlemoth, the first book I published, deals with the death penalty, the assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, it deals with the Ku Klux Klan. It deals with with actual historical events, the assassination of JFK. Um, now, I find real life more fictional than fiction, and I find real life an endless source of inspiration for novels. So I'm writing a book that deals with Capone in Chicago in 1920, the book I've just finished, when I'm talking to my editor about Tomorrow, which is published in June 2013. Um, the central character investigating a 20-year-old murder in Mississippi in 1974 has recently turned from a tour of duty in Vietnam. Deals with his experience in Vietnam. And I've researched extensively and I write extensively about those actual events, actual battles that took place, and the real infantry units, and the real divisions, and real units um, fighting the Viet Cong, you know, and how Nixon dealt with it, and how LBJ dealt with it. I mean, I am a research junkie, and I love to research these kind of things, do you know what I mean? Ali, we got any titles,
0: though? Uh, yeah, no,
3: we have some titles. <laughs> Let me just tell you. Um, we have Better Red Than Dead, Alberta <laughs> on a Fork, <laughs> Stories <laughs> of an Old Boiler.
0: Stories it's of an big, Old What? Uh, what was that? An Old Boiler. Old boiler. Oh Boiler, <laughs> of course. Okay, right, yes. Chickens. Yeah, yeah, Chickens
3: yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, best Pictures are on the Radio. Um, and don't be one of those people who live a what-if life. I just thought your grandmother ought to be in there somewhere. Is that a book in your pocket, or are you just pleased to see me? I
0: don't know what that's uh, relevant. That's not relevant at all, is it? <laughs> it's just it's a god. <laughs> waiting
3: for the Remesis. Yeah. Um, a writer in the Red-Headed League. And the best story to start with, what if?
1: Okay, gosh. Uh, yes, anything totally fancy
0: there at all, Roger?
1: I, I, think we have to go, I think we have to go along the theme of, of this kind of... Um, potentially inspiring concept of what if, so maybe we just call it "What Would Happen If" dot dot dot. Okay,
0: Roger Ellery, R J Ellery. What would happen if dot dot dot? I like that. That's one cool title, Roger. Um, <laughs> where do we find
1: you on the web? www dot e l l o r y dot com. That's Ellery, not Elroy.
0: Right. Okay. Careful of that.
1: <laughs> and you, and you do you tweet? Yes, I do. I do, and I'm on Facebook. Endlessly. Um,
0: It's been fascinating listening to you tonight, Roger. Um, More than fascinating. Actually, quite inspiring. I think. You've you've been very, very open, very honest with us. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so sorry that you were grassed up by nuns early on in life. (laughs) (laughs) But, but you know, hey, it's always a silver lining when you're grassed up by a nun, because it's given the world R.J. Ellery, hasn't it? Absolutely absolutely. Thank you for being with <laughs> us guys. We will we will return this time next Sunday. Good night everybody. Night night. Absolutely.
2: Good night.
0: Hello, oh, this is Peter Cox with a very special offer. If you like listening to Radio Litopia, you'll love Litopia Writers' Colony. The net's oldest and friendliest community, run by and for writers. It's the best place on the net to hone your writing skills, to catch up with the latest publishing gossip, and just to hang out with like-minded people from all over the world. Even better, because you're listening to Radio Litopia right now, you can get a special 15% discount off the normal cost of membership. Here's the code you need: Radio15. Use it at the checkout, or one word. Radio 15 and I'll see you in the colony.